The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We are grateful that you have made it possible for us to come into your presence. You have torn the curtain and welcomed us in. We stand before you. Only because of the work of Christ on the cross, we stand before you in your presence in which there is fullness of joy. And we are thankful for that. But Lord, I pray that you would grow in us thankfulness. That you would grow in us an awareness of what that means and how to experience it. You would make that an experienced reality, not just an intellectual reality. That you would draw us into your presence in our moment-by-moment experienced life. Those of us who are Christians, Lord, you have saved us. But Lord, do do more. Enable us to experience that salvation moment-by-moment. To know your presence. This is a work of your Spirit in us. To bring that to pass. It's towards that end, Lord, that we're going to consider a passage today. But would you commission your Spirit to open up this book to us and to speak to us in it. To give life. We do not, oh God, I do not pretend to think that it is within our power to just look at some English words on a page and be different by ourselves and our own strength. You must, by Your Spirit, do a work. Please do that. We as Your people plead for Your power to rest on us. We ask You to send Your Spirit to run through this room. To have His way in us, Your your speaker and Your hearers right now. To have His way in us that we would become Your doers. Your believers, your hopers, your rejoicers, your worshipers. Bring that to pass by the power of the Spirit, I ask you, Lord. Use this short time this morning to to further your work in us, to make us your people, to sanctify us, to change us, to draw those here who don't know you, by your Spirit, Lord, be at work here in our midst, I pray. For the glory of Christ and for the good of your church. Amen. This morning we step away from our study in the book of Deuteronomy to give further attention to a subject that was raised for us last week in chapter 12. Chapter 12, you recall, is a turning point in the course of the book. For a while through Deuteronomy, we've been kind of working towards and anticipating the giving of the statutes and the rules and the regulations and all the details of the law. Been working towards that. And in chapter 12, we turned to those details. And what we found was that immediately, the first topic was about worship. Not how to worship, but where. Where do we go to worship? What, what location? Not to all the assorted places that the Canaanites worship. Not to all of their idols and altars under every green tree, on every mountain, and every hill. Not to all of those places. We are to go to the one place 
that God said the one place he would choose. About half a dozen times throughout the chapter, he said, I'm going to pick a place. I'm going to choose a place, uh, and uh, that's the place you're supposed to go. And the reason that we're supposed to go there is that he was going to put his name on that place, his, his presence, his being. So to that place where God himself is, of course, God's omnipresent, he's everywhere, but he was going to uniquely be somewhere. That's the place we're to go and to worship there. And the text said three times, before the Lord, you will rejoice in worship. You go to this place and rejoicing before the Lord there in worship. All that you undertake. You go into His presence and there in the presence of the Lord you lift Him up in worship and rejoicing, joy characterizes you. Because we were made for that. That's what He made us for. He didn't make us to hold down a piece of land or to work a job or to talk to other people. All those things are aspects of life, but He made us to be worshipers of Him. For His glory and for our joy, which are the same thing. He made us like cups to be filled. To be filled with, with the immensity of this glorious God. Not to be filled with all the, the petty, small things here on this planet. To be filled with Him. And so it is only natural that we come into His presence where He is, we connect with Him, and rejoice. It's what He made us for. So we're supposed to go there and drink deeply of Him to our satisfaction. So, so where is He? Where is He present? Where has God made His name to dwell? In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. If you read just Deuteronomy 12, you're left asking, where, where is that? Where is the place? You keep reading through Revelation history, you realize, oh, that's the temple, which is actually shot through with all kinds of imagery pointing ahead to some other coming temple where God and men meet. You keep reading through Revelation history, you realize, oh, the new and better temple is Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, who called himself the new temple in John 2. Come to Jesus where God and human beings can meet in His very person, fully God and fully man. And then because of His work and what He has done on the cross to remove the barrier that keeps people away from God, sin. On the cross, He deals with that, satisfying the wrath of God to remove the barrier of sin for all who trust Him so that there is no longer a barrier and people can actually come fully into the presence of God rejoicing. You come to Jesus to meet God. And so obviously the call then last week, the call to us is come to Jesus. Some need to come to Jesus the very first time. You need to trust Him with yourself and be saved. There's a message there for those who are not Christians. But they're also, and this is starting to move us toward what we're going to look at today, there also is a message there for Christians to consider. Namely a message about living joyful lives of worship. If you're a Christian, you live constantly in the presence of the Lord. You've come to Him. The barriers have been removed. You come to Him. He actually lives in you. 
He dwells within us, so wherever we walk around, we carry around the presence of God with us. You live, if you're a Christian, you live constantly in His presence. So therefore, joy, the rejoicing that happens before the Lord, joy should characterize your life. You live in His presence. You should have a life of joyful worship, not just on Sunday mornings, 24-7. It's what you should have. It's actually what you want. We all, every human being, wants a life of joy. It's what we're actually chasing in everything else that we chase in life. Think of all the stuff that we pursue, whether it be relationships or money or prestige or jobs or or whatever we chase out there. It's because we, we want enjoyment. We want to be happy, to rejoice, to find rest. We think we can find it in all those other little things. They don't deliver, ultimately. We want that. We strongly want to know joy. God wants us to know it too. He actually commands it. Think of the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He commands that we rejoice. Because that full, full rejoicing comes from being connected to Him. He's the one that gives us this joy. So it's honoring to Him as it satisfies us. And it commends this message that we talk about to other people who are watching. They look at us and say, Okay, I hear what you say about this gospel that you say is good news. I'm not so sure if it is or not. What do I see coming out of your life? And if joy in all kinds of circumstances, comes out of your life, it commends, it supports this gospel. It says there actually is good news here. It does reconnect me to a God who is good and who satisfies the soul. We want it. God wants it. Other people actually want to see it in us. Seeing that lived out is important in all circumstances. And just to be clear, I am not talking about some sort of a of a joy that's more like a a giddy, shallow happiness. We're not not talking about that. We're talking about a joy that is capable of a profound grappling with this real world and takes it very seriously. That understands that this real world Fallen in sin is full of slaughter and horror. Read the newspaper. You know it's true. It's full of slaughter and horror and a thousand other petty annoyances. And it has a 100% mortality rate in the end. That's the real world. And what we're talking about is is a type of joy that is able to to wrestle with that life and take it very seriously and to take very seriously, perhaps more seriously, the life that is to come. So that while dealing with this in this fallen world, you can, in the words of 1 Peter 1, he writes to Christians scattered throughout what is modern day Turkey, And he describes them as facing many trials and being grieved by them and yet rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Real world, grievous trials, rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. 
Or like the Thessalonians talked about. 1 Thessalonians 1. As they received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or like the Christians, new Christians in Antioch, Pisidia, who when persecution broke out, were, it says, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Grievous trials, much affliction, persecution, rejoicing with the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And when you talk in a first century Christian world about grievous trials, affliction, and persecution, you're talking about murder, beatings, being stoned to death, imprisoned, put on a slave galley, eventually turned over to be lunch for the lions. That's what those words mean. They know the real world. The Bible knows the real world. And talks about rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Those two things... That's what we're talking about. That's what we're shooting for. That's what Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, thinks happens. Rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. That's what God wants for His people. And last week, by way of helping us move towards that, we, we emphasized the necessity of preaching the gospel to ourselves. And having others close enough to know when we're deviating away and to preach the gospel to us. That, that first Peter one quote, rejoicing with joy, it's inexpressible, full of glory. It continues on, as you consider the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's on their minds? I know where this is going. I, I see this grievous trial, but I know where it's going. That's the gospel. The outcome of my faith, the salvation of my soul. I consider that so I can rejoice with the joy that's inexpressible. So we emphasized last week the need to be able to preach that gospel to yourself consistently and have others around you who will also preach it to you consistently and point out where you're walking away from it, where you tend to be grumpy. Remember that from the, the story at the end of last week's sermon. Now beat that drum again and again and again because it's true and we need to think about it and need to hear it. But this week, we're going to add to that. Not, not replace it. Add. We're going to add in the role of the Holy Spirit. And my aim this, this week in doing this is to turn us away from a, from a kind of Christianity that is, words I'll use to describe it, mechanical and non-supernatural. I want to attack something this morning by using a a passage from the Bible, and I say attack, I'm not going to be combative or mean or something like that, but I want to poke at something and expose it and turn us away from it, a, a non-supernatural type of Christianity that believes that really it's all in my head and it's about facts. And might be inclined to think that if I just take these facts of the gospel and I kind of say them and 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 say them to myself, then I'll be happy and I'll find joy and I'll worship throughout life. That's not true. That's part of it. It's not, not all of it, though. We need God the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that in Thessalonians? Received it in much affliction and knew the joy of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
The spirit and joy are connected. So what I'm trying to do here is go beyond a simple cognitive issue. Not instead of. God always works. God always works through our minds. He transforms us by the renewing of our minds. But He does that with the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes fact and puts the Spirit on and through that fact to do the work inside of us. It's not purely mechanical, cognitive, about information. It is about that, and it's about more than that. This is a supernatural religion. It's a supernatural faith. We need the Spirit. That's what we're going to work towards this morning in the book of Ephesians. Turn to the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians is, is about 75 pages from the end of your Bible. Depending on how long your Bible is, but it's towards the end. And actually, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a very solid church, in fact, in the city of Ephesus. We're going to look at one passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Let me read the passage. Ephesians 5, 18, and do, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 18-21. It's a passage, pretty short. Depending on your translation or if you're able to follow along there, you might notice that it's actually all just one sentence. Kind of long, several verses long, but it's one basic sentence. And let me kind of capture the essence of it in, in another summary sentence, a little bit shorter. Putting it in the form of a command. Main point, be filled with the Spirit in order to experience the joyful life that God intends. Be filled with the Spirit in order to experience the joy that God intends. I'm just going to break that in half. Two parts of the passage, I'm going to break them in half, make two observations, and I'm actually going to start at the end. So here's my first observation from the, the back half of the passage. This is from the text. It's from the whole Bible. I alluded to a little bit of it in some other passages. It's from Deuteronomy 12. First observation, God intends for His people to live joyful lives of worship. That's his intention. God intends for his people to live joyful lives of worship. He's always intended that, not just on Sunday mornings, not just amidst pleasant circumstances, but always, at all times, in all situations. I draw this from verses 19 to 21. But before we go there, let me set the context of the book because it's going to show how it establishes our particular verses here as God's expected norm for the Christian. 
You may recall from when we preached through this book a number of years ago that the book of Ephesians is a very distinct pattern. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about the gospel. They are all about what God has done to save His people. They talk about His eternal plan, His election, His sending of Christ, His saving work, His bringing of the dead to life, His binding of all different cultures, especially Jew and Gentile, together. His work in the church. It's all about what God has done. And apart from one incidental comment, there isn't a command at all. One little one. The first three chapters are free of command. They are all about what God has done. It's the gospel. Then, though, at chapter 4, verse 1, things change. Seeing all that God has done in the gospel, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that. Very similar structure, is it not, to what we were seeing in the Ten Commandments. Given that God has made you His people, here's how He then intends for you to live. Given the gospel and what He has done, here's what He intends. And from chapter 4, verse 1 on, the rest of the book is full of commandments. Not suggestions or ideas. Thoughts about how to proceed. Orders. This is what God has done. Walk this way then. Or live. Translation might say. Walk this way. This is what God intends. And so chapter 5 obviously is in this section. It's what He intends. Expects. Requires. Whatever word you want to use there. It's the kind of life that He wants us to have. And the fact that these statements in verses 19 through 21 are all in the present tense just reinforces that. They're ongoing statements. Today, he intends 19 to 21. Tomorrow, he intends it. The next day, Thursday afternoon. On and on and on. He intends this be your life. So what does it say? Verse 19 then. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Singing is actually very related to the word psalm. You could say psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, psalming and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. What is that? That's worship. Think what those words are. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and then speaking to the Lord in the same way. Singing and making melody to Him with your heart. That's worship towards one another. Communicating us, communicating with each other in the language of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Not to say that life is a musical. We have to sing everything. Thankfully. It's, it's not a musical. What he's saying is that our communication should have the same stuff in it that these songs have in them. That our communication here, the atmosphere that we develop, should be remarkably gospel-centered and God-centered. We should not just talk about football or the grandkids. Those things are fine, 
But they are not the atmosphere that we are to, to exist in. We are to address one another in God-centered, gospel-centered conversation. That's what we are like. As fits the circumstances, we worship Him to one another. And we worship Him to Him. Singing and making melody to Him with all of our heart. This is a life endeavor, worship from the heart. Which obviously implies some sincerity, some earnestness, earnestness. It implies that we are emotionally involved and connected in it. It's joyful worship. Deuteronomy talks about the rejoicing in His presence where you're offering up the sacrifices of worship. We see it implied there a little bit in the from the heart. But it's also logically joyful worship. That's actually redundant. Think about this. To talk about joyful worship is redundant. It's saying the same thing. You cannot worship separate from rejoicing. To understand this, try worshiping, not in a God sense, but try praising or giving some exclamation of honor or delight to another human being without joy, not being with all of your heart. Just, just try saying, if you're married, try saying to your spouse, uh, you look beautiful tonight. I love you. And the reason that I'm saying that is that it's our anniversary and I have to say that on this day. There are certain days during the year, our anniversary, your birthday, Valentine's Day, then they add in sweetest day, etc., etc. Thankfully, it's not every Sunday morning, but there are days of the year that I have to come and tell you how great you are. So, you're great. See how that goes over. Why it's not going to go over well is that you obviously don't mean it. And what reveals you don't mean it is that you don't enjoy it. It's drudgery. It's obligation. You have to, so you do. Which means that you actually didn't. You actually didn't praise the spouse. You insulted him or her. The only reason I say this is because I have to is an insult, not an honor. If I didn't have to, I wouldn't, is what it says. If I didn't have to come here on Sunday morning and worship you, I wouldn't. It says, I don't see any reason to worship. If I didn't have to worship you 24-7 throughout all my life, I wouldn't. Worship and enjoyment of it, delight in it, joy, are connected. To separate them destroys them both. He doesn't use the word joy here, but he is talking about joyful worship as God's intended life for His people. From the heart, in a present tense sense, always. Rejoicing, singing to one another, and making melody from our heart to Him. Joyful worship throughout all of life. God intends that we live joyful lives of worship. And an aspect of worship is thanksgiving. 
even in very difficult circumstances. Look at verse 20 and following. So we are to, to sing, and verse 20, living this life of worship, also includes giving thanks always and for everything. That's stunning. Always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word actually is fear. Which could throw us back to Deuteronomy also. Out of fear for Christ, in a biblical sense, reverence. In the name of Jesus, on account of Jesus, because of Jesus, give thanks always for everything. That's amazing. If you stop for just a second and think about what happens in life, there's no barrier on always for everything. It's not. I mean, it's explicitly not for the stuff that makes you happy. For the stuff that works out for you or happens as you hoped it would. Always for everything is very wide. And this isn't the only time Paul says this. You could look at, if you've got 5, 18, 19 in mind, you could think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, 19 and surrounding verses. It says essentially the same thing there. Give thanks always. He really intends, God's intention for us in life is not that we be grumpy but that we give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you submit to those who are in authority over you, which kind of leads into the following verses. We won't talk too much about that. But how do you submit? Out of reverence for Christ. He keeps going back to, you can't do this apart from keeping Christ the center. You can't give thanks for everything in in all of life if you don't have Christ the center. If you have Him at the center, and you have this attitude of worship and joy, and what's on your mind is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, it puts a different spin on all of the incredibly difficult things in life. We are not saying that... The Bible does not mean that you give thanks for evil. You can't give thanks for that which God hates. Follow this very closely. I'm not saying we are to give thanks for evil. But we are to give thanks in that circumstance of evil. How in the world, pick one that, to my knowledge, we haven't experienced here, which is why I'm picking it. I don't know, I don't know that any of us have had a relative murdered. But take that one. You don't say, thank God for murder. It's evil. He hates it. But, you can give thanks always and for everything to Him. How? Well, if, you, if in your mind, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you put Jesus Christ over all of this, then you realize there is much more going on here than just the evil murder of a loved one. What all is going on? I, I don't know all that's going on. But you can imagine some things, 
You can put them under other verses that we know. Think of the story of Joseph where he repeatedly says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Or think of Romans 8. God works all things for good, those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, if you put the Lord Jesus Christ on this, I'm in Christ Jesus. Somehow this is an evil that he's going to work for good, intentionally, for my sanctification, perhaps for the salvation of other people. Who knows? But I can give thanks in it and am commanded to, not for the evil itself, but for what's going on in it. That is incredibly complex. And you can easily imagine standing there in that situation and not knowing where in the world that's going to come from, how in the world that's going to work out. Thanksgiving in this? It's, it's incredibly complex. So hard, it's miraculous. It does not come from the human heart. And it does not come from somebody just cognitively trying to work out some of the facts that I'm talking about here now, such that you would hear me say, oh, I guess he is working for good, and that makes some sense. Okay, so now I'm thankful for that murder. Those things don't happen naturally. It's miraculous. God has to intervene to do that, which is pushing us towards the, the second point here. But if, but if we're honest, we, we don't need to go to murder. We don't need to go to something, some extreme example. Most of us don't fail to live lives of joyful worship, giving thanks in all things. We don't, most of us don't fail to do that in really difficult circumstances like a murder. Most of the time, we just fail in simple, ordinary, everyday stuff. I walk outside in the morning, and the newspaper is soaking wet because he threw it under the sprinkler head again. And, vividly aware that I stand in the presence of God, full of glory, saved from my sin, delivered to an eternity, I worship and give thanks. Probably not. Or there was a line at the bathroom this morning and you had to wait a few minutes and worshiped in thanks and joy, right? Traffic moved a little more slowly than you had hoped and so you were a little late. But you worshiped in joy and gave thanks. We don't have to go to murder. We just have to go to the plain old ordinary simple stuff in life and see that we are remarkably far from this. Though you know all the facts, most of you have heard this passage preached a number of times. Maybe even from me. It's, it's familiar. But the problem is we don't live it. How do we get that? How do we get that life where, where the atmosphere here and here is worship and joy and we give thanks in all things and we can lay down our lives in humility and submit to those who are in authority over us? Well, if you have the NAS or the ESV Bible in your hands, you can see this pretty clearly. Do you notice that all the verbal forms in 19 through 21 are all participles? That is, they are words that end in ing. Work through, you see, addressing, 
singing, making melody, giving, and submitting also is one of them. We've got participles, which means that if you're looking at this sentence, that's, those aren't the main verbs. Looking for, those words are existing, looking for a finite verb somewhere else. This is a little bit of grammar here, I know. But they're looking for a home in a main verb somewhere else. They're dependent on a main verb somewhere else. They come from something else. Where do they come from? That's in verse 18, which gets us to our second observation. So God intends for his people to live joyful lives of worship. Where does that come from? Let me state it and then we'll look at it in the text. <coughs> the joyful life of worship comes from living filled by the Holy Spirit. This life of verses 19 through 21 comes from living filled by the Holy Spirit. God intends for us to live or, or to walk use the word from Ephesians, filled by the Spirit, verse 18, which then leads to 19 and following. So verse 18, here, here's the main verbs we're looking for. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, or the, as the NAS has it, dissipation, which is just wastefulness or a, a squandering of life to no end. Don't do that, but instead be filled with or be filled by the Holy Spirit. We talk about being filled. What we're talking about is not simply an item going into a container. What the word's getting at is an item going into a container that then exerts a controlling influence on that container. And you can see this in the contrast with wine. The issue in the first half of the verse is not that a, a juice derived from grapes goes into the body and fills up my stomach. That's not the issue. Drunkenness is. Too much of this goes in, it fills me up and exerts a controlling influence, which then has all kinds of negative results summed up under debauchery. It's the filling and then the exerting of the controlling influence. We're not to be controlled by the influence of wine, alcohol. Rather, we are to have the Spirit of God exerting a controlling influence. That leads to the life of 19 and following. That's the point. Have the Spirit control you, not get the Spirit into you. If you're a Christian, you already have the Spirit in you. and You have all of the Spirit in you that you can get in you. The Spirit of God is a personal being. The third person of the Trinity. He is a he, not an it. So we, we can't have like, you know, double of him. Think, think of it like as a human being. If I'm either here or I'm not. There, I can't come here and be here and then bring another one of me here. A personal being is either present or absent. And he is present in every Christian. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says that when you believed, at that moment you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Another word that the Bible uses to describe this is the baptism of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, says that all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit fully dwelling within him or her. 
That's important to, to understand. The issue is not to, to get him in. And think of how this connects to what we were talking about last week. We all have the presence of God fully dwelling in us if you're a Christian. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is how do you get him fully dwelling in you to exert controlling influence on you? That's the issue. Be filled by the Holy Spirit. If you remember the, the illustration from last week about the newspaper, a parent, let's say a dad, because this has been my experience sometimes, I can come home from being out somewhere, maybe at work, and, oh, the newspaper's there, and I'll pick up and I'll begin to read the newspaper. Dad, Mom, you can begin to read the newspaper, and Junior's on the other side of the newspaper talking to you. And you can kind of hear in your mind something about school and something about playing outside and... I think they mentioned a field trip there. And my response is basically, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, sure, oh, really? But I'm reading the paper. I'm aware of the presence of this other person. But what's really got my attention are the issues of the day. Perhaps the stuff on the front page, maybe the entertainment section, maybe the sports page. Something else has me. So I'm in the presence, but I'm not really engaged with. This one's not exerting the controlling influence on me, though this one is present. And what we need is this one to take down the newspaper so that I'm connected, so that I see this one has all of my attention. That's what we're talking about here. Paul is commanding Spirit-baptized Christians to be filled with the Spirit. To have the Spirit exert a controlling influence on your life. And it's not just a one-time thing. Some Christians teach that there's like a one-time thing that needs to happen. It's not. It's again and again and again. This command also is in the present tense. It's ongoing. You can never say, did that, done with it. Because immediately now the command stands for me again. And it stands for me again there and tomorrow and Tuesday afternoon. It's continual. Live under the controlling influence of the Spirit, His command. And interestingly, it is a passive command, which can become confusing. Be filled is not fill. Be filled is not fill yourself. It's a passive command. Be filled by Him. Which is really conceptually odd. How do you obey a passive command? To be filled by someone else. We have to think about it because it's a command. We've got to realize there's something that I am to do here. There's a command. But we have to start out by realizing ultimately we are dependent upon the grace of God. He is the sovereign one and we do not in any way work Him over and obligate Him to do something right now as I desire when I command it. That's not how we are related to Him. He is the sovereign one. The Spirit moves like wind blowing wherever He chooses and does whatever He pleases. He is God. But it is a command. 
What are we to do about that? So, being very, very clear that there is no formula here. So whatever I say here in the next couple minutes is not a formula such that you, you think, if I do this, and I do this, and this, I'm going to boil that down to three steps, or, or I'm going to say two things. Boil this down to two steps. I do this, and therefore God must do this. Not that. No, that's not how it works. So clear on that, let me now say two things. We have some responsibility here to obey this command, and I'm going to sum it up under two phrases. Prepare the ground and sue God for it. S-U-E. Sue God for it. Prepare the ground, like in farming. I don't know if some of us here have farming backgrounds, but you realize, of course, that farmers don't make anything grow. Farmers don't make stuff grow. The life is either in the seed or it isn't. It either grows under the, the control of some other power. If you're a Christian, you know it's God, but it grows under some other power or, or it doesn't. But every farmer knows that I plow the ground I plant the best seed I can find, I weed it, I fertilize it, I water it, in hope that a crop will come. Because I'm, I'm, I got it crystal clear that I will not get corn if I don't plant corn. I will not get corn from nothing. I will not get corn from beans. I will not get corn from acorn seeds. I might not get corn at all. That's not under my control. But if I want corn, I plant corn. And I work very hard at plowing the weeds out of that cornfield. And I fertilize it and I water it. I pay attention to it. You prepare the ground. We must prepare the ground of our hearts. You must plow it up. Make it receptive. Plant in it the good word of the, the good seed of the word. Preach the gospel to yourself and get other people to plant it in you repeatedly. And pay very close attention to, to rip out all the weeds that you see, all the sin in your life and all that stuff that so easily entangles you. You make war on it. And you pay attention to it to see if, if I didn't get it off, it's going to sprout up again next week. And you take that out. Because you know that stuff will choke out this crop. If there is to be a crop, that will be a contrary problem. That will be a problem for it. So you attack sin. You realize that what I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to facilitate God having control over my life, so I'm going to yield control. I'm not going to try to call the shots. I'm not going to draw lines where I say, okay, you can have me, you just can't have my marriage. You can't have my children. You can't have my finances. No way can you have my sex life. No way can you have my hobbies. You can have everything else, whatever's left. Please be in control of me, just not all this other stuff that I've decided, I'm in actually charge here, I've decided I'm going to maintain control. No, you yield everything. And you pay attention to where are the places where I'm kind of following after somebody else. The other stuff in life that's trying to exert a controlling influence on me. The things of the world. 
You pay attention to that. You, you exercise diligence over it. The, the whole point is to try to get rid of it and turn away from it. You can sum it up under the word repentance. You hunt down sin and repent of it. You plant the word in you. You water it in prayer. And then, pardon me, you sue God for it. As in file a lawsuit in God's court. I did not make up this phrase. It's not original with me. It comes from a very old Christian and then other people across the generations that have used it towards the same ends. But you see the necessity. You, you read this and you realize this is God's expected life. It's His requirement. And it comes from Him. It's the key to me living this life of joy. I, I want to be able to give thanks in all circumstances. I don't want to complain and grumble and whine. But what I need for that is the Spirit to exert controlling influence on me. And you have to give that. So God, give it. And like a persistent widow, you go ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. You sue Him for it. Give this that I need. Please. And I present it with a little bit of earnestness in it because some sort of a lackadaisical approach to that reveals that you're actually fine without it. If there's something that you mildly are interested in having, you ask for it once. Maybe twice. But if you're desperate, you ask again and again and again. And you don't take no for an answer. You sue God for it. Spirit of God, fill me. Have control of me. Would you take this word that I plant here, and I realize, Spirit of God, that it is not just a mechanical, cold, intellectual relationship that we're engaged here. I can read these words, I, I speak English, I understand them, they don't live for me. Spirit, I need you to make them live for me. Give life to them. I, Spirit of God, I understand all of the facts of the gospel and I believe it. And I'm thankful in a sense, but I'm not in some other remarkable senses. Spirit of God, exert a controlling influence on me so that I'm thankful, so that I believe this. And I don't get sidetracked by a wet newspaper or a, or a, a backup in traffic. You go to God earnest about this. And I would also add, step out and act. Put yourself in situations where you'll need it. It's interesting to note, not every time, but frequently when the New Testament talks about being filled by the Spirit, it involves a situation where it is really needed, particularly witnessing. Not every time, but with some frequency, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said he needed, at that moment, uh, there was a great possibility that he would be controlled by the fear of all of the people who hated him and wanted to kill him. 
So he needed the Spirit to step in to the driver's seat, to put the goggles on, to control what he thinks. And the Spirit of God did. And so he spoke. I wonder, I, I don't know, but I wonder if we can be content to live in this in, in, in an intellectualized faith without the filling of the Holy Spirit because we don't find ourselves in a lot of situations where we are aware of our need for Him. Witnessing in danger. We live pretty comfortable lives, most of us. Sue Him for it and step out and act. Every time you realize that the the joy leaking out, there's a moment when you need Him to fill you. Every time you realize thankfulness leaking out and complaining rushing in, or despair or hopelessness. Last night, my upstairs bathroom starts coming through the downstairs bathroom. And I'm aware of what I'm going to preach this morning. <laughs> and I'm trying to work it through real quick. Uh, okay, what are the facts? I know the facts, but the facts... Spirit of God. Take control of my mind and my heart right now so that this inconsequential stuff appears as inconsequential as it actually is. So that I can give thanks in all situations, including this one, right now, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to happen, but be, become aware when the situation arises, what I need now, Spirit of God. Take control of me. Turn my mind to the truth. Take the newspaper down so that I can see. Sue Him for it. We need the Spirit of God for this, moment by moment. When He fills us, the joyful life of worship and thanksgiving results. Be filled with the Spirit in order to experience joy in life. Take a moment and pray now as we move towards communion. Ask God to work in your life Speak to you about whatever he needs to speak to you about. In a second, I'll close it and we'll move towards communion. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have brought us into your presence by the blood of Christ, which we celebrate now in communion. And pray, Lord, as we take these elements in our hands and look at them, that you would, by your Spirit's power, give us an awareness of what they're about cross that clears away sin so that we can know you. The bread that sustains us and feeds us and on which we are to live. Both of them about Jesus. He is our hope. So pray, make us aware of that. Continue to rest on us here, I pray. Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.